And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come, lay your hands on her so that she may live, be made well, and live. And Jesus went with him. And then there's an interruption as Mark details the story that Dan read for us earlier of the bleeding woman. Picking the story up in verse 35, while Jesus was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher anymore? And overhearing what they had said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in to where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kume which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And Jesus strictly charged them that no one should know of this and told them to give her something to eat. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father in heaven, we pray, as always, that you would bless the meditations of our hearts, the words of my mouth, so that you would be honored and pleased now and forevermore. Amen. Please be seated, if you would. I have uh, told this story before, but it fits so well within the context of you learning how I read the scriptures that I think that it's worth telling uh, again. It helps shape so much of the way I understand why it is and how it is that the Lord has blessed us with the Word of God. I was dating a girl for some time, and it came to a spot where it would be appropriate for me to meet her parents, to spend some time with her parents, and so we designed to go ahead and watch a movie together, and I went over to her house, and they had this movie, and it was a tearjerker of a movie. It was intentionally one of those movies that are built around making you cry, and I was trying desperately to impress this girl, so I put on my stoic self and said, by golly, I'm not going to be affected by this movie, and I stood there like a rock while the movie is playing out about two-thirds of the way through, I thought to myself, this is kind of silly. I'm, I'm at this movie. I'm supposed to be engaged with this movie. I'm supposed to be enjoying this movie. So I just on a dime switched over and, and gave myself over to the movie. And by the end of the movie, I was bawling like a baby, crying, weeping. It was a mess. I was just, I never had another date with that girl. Uh, not once. Uh, The scriptures are given to us as God's word, not as a list of things that we're supposed to follow, not as a set of doctrines that we are supposed to follow along, but the scriptures are given to us in a way that we are to engage with them, where we are supposed to learn completely and totally and be enmeshed in the scriptures. It is part of the reason why God has blessed us with the word. It is exactly why the word comes to us so much as though it does, so that we learn from the word, not simply in our heads, 
but also in our hearts that we engage completely and totally with the Scripture. And I love this particular text because it makes that engagement so very easy. Now, it would be easy for us just intellectually to grasp that Jesus has exercised his divine power and he has raised this girl from the dead and what a wonderful, marvelous thing that is. We know that the, the intellectual contours of the story are easy to grasp. But if that's all we grasp, if that's as far along as we go, I fear that we miss so much of what God is seeking for us to grasp and to understand when it comes to this text so I encourage you at this time as we walk through this, not simply to put yourself in the intellectual position of trying to understand what's going on in this passage. We're going to do that together. But rather, to recognize that this passage, as all of Scripture, is to be engaged with completely and totally with all that we have. And as we engage with God's Word, God's Spirit speaks powerfully to us. We're going to practice that a little bit by following the emotional state of Jairus the Father. What I want you to do is be asking yourself as we go through this passage, how is it that Jairus, is he just like that stoic person that stands there and watches a movie and is unaffected? I don't think we're supposed to read the story that way. We are supposed to engage with it, so I would encourage you to do so as we begin. Verse 21, Jesus had crossed again from the boat. This is if you've been with us the past couple of weeks or if you go back and read earlier in the Gospel of Mark, you know Jesus has been spending time going back and forth along the Sea of Galilee proclaiming God's message. He has been preaching about the kingdom of God over and over again. And here, as soon as he lands on this side, once again, he is inundated with a crowd. Um, we've mentioned this before that Mark uses the crowd kind of as a foil for true discipleship. The crowd represents those people that are intrigued by Jesus, interested in him, curious about him, but refuse to commit to him as opposed to others in this passage, Jairus being one of them here in this section. Verse 22, as Jesus is there in the midst of a crowd, suddenly one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, sees Jesus and falls at his feet. Okay, now, in order to appreciate this, in order to appreciate Jairus' emotional state, and that's what I'm asking you to do, to grab a hold of what, what Jairus is feeling, and going through during this time, you have to realize that he is one of the rulers of the synagogue. In other words, that he was, bar none, the most prominent person in the town, or one of the most prominent people in the town. He was the most respected. He was the highest held. He had the most prominent position. Jairus was the man, and everybody recognized him as such. And yet... Here he comes, and you can imagine what's happening here, uh, and the background of the story is clear. His daughter is very sick, so desperately sick, that imagine what he does. Jairus comes plowing through the crowd, and you again imagine the uh, crowd, we're told that, is gathering around Jesus, and in a few minutes that crowd is going to jostle Jesus in such a matter, bumping into him, that Jairus has to plow through the crowd, and you can imagine his desperation as he is throwing people out of the way. Why? Because he is desperate to get to Jesus. Why? You don't have to have kids to imagine what it is like for a parent to have a child at death's doorstep. That's the way Mark records Jesus' words here, Jairus' words here, that my little daughter is close to the death or to the point of death. She's at death's doorstep. And I know from 
ministering with you and living amongst you, that some of you have gone through that experience. And you know exactly what that's like. Many of us haven't experienced it, but you don't have to have kids to know what that would be like. But I will tell you, after I had kids, passages like this became so much more prominent to me realizing what wouldn't you do? Who wouldn't you throw aside? What wouldn't you do if, to get Jesus to come to your house? And so this man comes, and throwing people out of the way, he falls at Jesus' feet. This is a man, the ruler of the synagogue, the most prominent person in that, in that culture, your dignity, your status was so highly held that throwing himself at Jesus' feet in the dust of the road, clinging to his feet. And then notice what it says here. He implored him earnestly. That's the same word of begging that if you were here a couple of weeks ago, we talked about people begging Jesus. Here, the Jairus in front of everybody, in front of the whole town, this most prominent, well-respected person cares for nothing but throwing people out of the way, getting in front of Jesus, falling on his face, grabbing a hold of him, and pleading with him, Come to my house. What's Jairus' state? It's easy to imagine. He's desperate. He's terrified. He's overcome with sorrow. And then you have this, the very quick line in verse 24, which I love. Uh, Jairus, by the way, in 23 says, My daughter is at the point of death. Come lay your hands on her. Once again, an obvious expression of faith that Jairus comes to Jesus saying, you can do something about this. But again, the faith is an immature faith. It's mixed with this superstition that somehow Jesus has to lay his hands on somebody or that he's a channel of divine power or something along those lines. But Jesus responds. No matter how immature the faith, Jesus responds, and we're left to wonder what that response might be because in verse 24, all we're told is that Jesus went with him. But can you imagine Jairus' state of mind at that point? Can you imagine his emotion? He's been so overwrought by fear for his daughter, and suddenly Jesus, I don't know, says, yes, I will go, or for sure I'll be there, or let me take care of the problem, and somehow he is going with Jesus, Jairus, to his home, and Jairus's emotional state must suddenly have spiked. There's hope, there's, there's anticipation, there's an eagerness, there's a, yes, let's get this done. I don't know what this was like. Again, we're told that there was this big crowd around Jesus at this time, and Jairus would have, the impatience, the eagerness, this is my daughter, this is my daughter who's dying, and, and would, I doubt it, but maybe grab a hold of Jesus by the arm and be yanking him, pulling him through the crowd. And suddenly, Jesus stops and starts complaining that somebody's touched him. This is the story that Dan read for us earlier and that we looked at last week. Why, and, and, and Jesus is like, who touched me? And Jairus is going crazy, going, who cares? I have a family member, an extended family member, that the more eagerly we have to get somewhere, the quicker we have to get somewhere, the slower they walk. <laughs> you know who I mean. 
I don't know if that's intentional. I don't know if he does it intentionally. I don't know what he's doing. But I'm telling you, I just want to wring his neck every time we're with him and we're going anywhere. It's easier just not to go anywhere because, you know, he's just going to be dragging behind and, and all this kind of stuff. And I'm not saying Jesus is doing that. But imagine what Jairus is feeling when he's desperate to get his daughter is dying. And he needs to get Jesus, the promised healer, to his daughter in time. And Jesus is complaining that somebody touched him. The, how's Jairus feeling? The, the annoyance, the frustration, the, almost anger certainly boils over to anger when that woman, that one, the unclean one, the one that everybody knows is unclean, comes and confesses that she's the one that touched Jesus. And you realize that by touching Jesus, the holy man has lost his connection to God. The holy man now is no longer clean. The holy man can't come into Jesus' presence because this unholy woman has touched him. And Jairus' anger must have just overcome him everything is lost for sure then when he looks in verse 35 and he looks down the road and while Jesus is still speaking to this woman and Jairus is trying to figure out what the heck this means for him Jairus looks down the road and here coming towards him is that face that he fears to see that's probably a household servant bringing the news that his daughter is dead. And Jairus must just collapse. The despair overrides him. Everything that he had been hoping for and banking on, that Jesus would come, and then all of this delay, and then his daughter is dead. And you can imagine the horror for Jairus. Verse 36, when Jesus overheard what they said, the word for overheard there is uh, listened in. It's kind of hearing a conversation that you're not meant to have, and that's obviously what had happened. Jesus is standing right next to Jairus when Jairus gets that news. And Jesus is overcome and sorry, Jairus is overcome, and Jesus says to him, overhearing that, the overhearing not just means listened in, but also means kind of dismisses it, hears it, and realizes that it's not the reality. So Jesus, realizing that there is a different reality, says to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. Repeated over and over again in the scriptures, that promise of, the, of what intimate salvation with God is like, do not fear. Now what's he's doing is he's saying, do not judge the circumstances. Don't judge by what you hear with your ears. Don't judge by what you see with your eyes. Don't make decisions based on what you think in your brain. Only believe. The tense of the word believe there is a continuous one. The implications being that Jesus is saying, don't, don't, he's not saying remember that you used to have faith. He's not saying, remember that you might soon in the future have faith. He is saying right now, 
continue to be believing. Continue to be believing. Well, where was Jairus believing? Jairus is believing, obviously, back earlier in verse 23, where he says, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come lay your hands on her so she might live. And Jesus says, continue to be believing. In what? Not in the power of belief, not in the wonders of having a confident mindset. Do what you have been doing, which is to come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. When I was much younger, I used to work with my father as a land surveyor, and when he trained me on the main instrument of that, it was called a transit. It's kind of like a telescope. You had to look through it. You had to follow him, Jesus, uh, Jesus, had to follow my father as he's walking through the, everything is Jesus, uh, as he's walking through the woods and stuff like that. You had to keep your eye on the transit, and you had to follow him as he's going there, and my dad taught me you have to close everything else out and focus in just upon me as I'm walking through the woods because if you lose sight of me, the whole thing falls apart. And here Jesus is saying, do not fear, don't lose sight of me. Only keep believing. What is Jairus' emotional state at that point? Okay, he's just heard that his daughter is dead, that all hope is lost. Despair has flooded through him, and here now the famous teacher that he has sought out and humiliated himself in front of the whole town says to him, just keep believing. I, I think he has to be utterly numb, overwhelmed with despair and fear, sorrow, and yet Jesus is saying something positive and I don't really can't process it. It means nothing to me because my daughter is dead. Verse 37, Jesus does one of those things that Mark makes clear. He separates the believers from the crowd. Somehow Jesus separates himself from the crowd and just takes his disciples with him, Peter, James, and John, as they go towards the house of the ruler in verse 38. They hear the professional mourners. Now this was uh, the mourning, the wailing, wailing and the weeping that we hear here is not just something that, that is coming about because the family is distraught. Rather, the family is announcing, it's how you announce a death back then. There's no newspapers, those kind of things. So what you would do is you would, you would hire a professional mourner. Even poor people were told that they had to get at least two flutes and a handful of women who would mourn, who would announce the death. And so as Jairus is coming towards his home, bringing, following Jesus at this point, because he's just emotionally spent, he's dragging behind himself, dreading going home, and he hears in the distance the professional wailers and mourners crying out about his daughter's death. And it's at this point that I can just imagine Jairus completely falling apart, like literally needing by Jesus to get dragged the rest of the way home. Jesus walks in the door and he says to the crowd, to the professional weepers, why, why are you wailing? This girl is not dead, she is asleep. Now let's be clear about this. The girl is dead. The girl is dead. But picking up upon that wonderful biblical imagery that the scriptures pull forward to us consistently, that for the believer, 
Death is not final. Death is only a temporary vision. It is like going to sleep and then waking back up again. And so death forever is paralleled for the believer in Scripture as sleeping. The imagery works. The parallelism works there consistently. And Jesus is not here denying that she's physically dead. What he's saying is that it's not permanent because the Lord of life has entered into the house. The Lord of life is here. And so Jesus can look around and say, she's not dead because this is not permanent for her. Rather, it's just like she's gone to sleep. That great promise that holds for each and every believer that we do not die and pass away, but rather we are held by our Lord until he wakes us again at the resurrection. The girl is not dead but sleeping. And then in verse 40, these professional mourners... They laugh at Jesus. They're professionals. They know what death is like. And they begin to laugh at Jesus. What is Jairus thinking at this point? He just gets into his home. And while he's standing in his home, hearing all the wailing and everything, Jesus says something to the wailers. He's not really paying attention because he's got no attention to pay. And he hears them start Laughing, mocking Jesus. There's no compassion. There's no empathy. There's no love. They start to laugh. One of the understated spots of this text, I'd love to know what happens immediately after they laugh at Jesus. Jesus put them all outside. I'd love to know what that was. Did he grab them and throw them out? Did he get his disciples to throw them out? I get the picture. He just stood there and with the power of command just chased them away. And then you have the entrance of the mother. Jesus takes Jairus and the mother. And you can just picture Jairus, the room empties, and all that's left there is his weeping wife. And he comes to her, and what must that have been like? And once again, Jesus intrudes upon the sorrow and the suffering and grabs them and takes them into the room where the child was. Getting into that room, walking into that room, what possibly could that have been like for him? Taking her by the hand, verse 40. Notice what Jesus does here. Takes her by the hand, something that is echoed over and over again, specifically in the Gospel of Mark, but in all of the Gospels, that Jesus' actions come when he takes her by the hand. What does that mean? When he touches the leper, when he reaches out and is touched by the woman, the bleeding woman, when he reaches to the demoniac and lays his hands upon the demoniac, in every one of those instances, Jesus is identifying himself with her. And here Jesus identifies himself with the death of the girl, takes her by the hand and with a word of command. Our Lord of love touching us. Our Lord of command. Commanding. What does he say? Talita. That's, um, Talita is, is little lamb. Uh, little child kind of thing, but it's a, it's a homie. It's a, it's a little lamb. Remember when Jesus referred to the woman, the bleeding woman, as daughter. Here, this is kind of, again, an endearing term. Uh, Talita kume, 
which means, little girl, I say to you, arise, and what happens? What, what does Jairus think? Leave her alone. Don't touch my girl. But then, verse 42, immediately, here what Mark's classic word, immediately she gets up and starts dancing around, starts walking around. What's Jairus thinking here? He's overcome. Notice that she's 12 years old, which is exactly the age of the bleeding woman, how, how long the woman in the previous story had been bleeding, once again weaving these two stories together. So for 12 years, this woman had been bleeding, and now the child who's been 12 years old has been raised back to life. She begins to walk around at the end of verse 42, and immediately they were overcome with amazement. What is the, what's Jairus's emotional state at this point? Jairus's emotional state, he's overcome. And you can hear Mark kind of piling it along here. They immediately, they were overcome with amazement. I mean, there are just are not words to describe what is going on here in Jairus's heart. When the girl becomes alive, there's no words that can describe it. And to me, that's not even the most emotionally powerful thing that happens in this passage. To me, the most emotionally powerful thing is in verse 43. And Jesus strictly charged them that no one should know this and tell her to give them something to eat. Don't tell anyone. Don't. Don't, don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone the amazement, the awe, the shock, the joy of seeing his daughter alive is suddenly replaced with utter and complete incredulity in front of the whole town. I prostrated myself on the ground in front of you. I humiliated myself in front of the ground so that you would come and heal my daughter and make her live. The whole town heard that she had died. The whole town was aware that the wailing and the crying of the daughter, and you're telling me I can't tell anybody that you just raised my daughter from the dead? You raised my daughter from the dead. I've got to tell somebody. I've got to tell somebody. My daughter was raised from the dead. I've got to tell somebody. My son, by God's grace and Christ's call, has been raised from the dead. I've got to tell somebody. My wife has been raised from the dead. I've got to tell somebody. I have been raised from the dead. I've got to tell somebody. I've got to tell somebody. Lord Jesus Christ, I thank you that I am not under the command that this man was under, that Jairus was under, not to tell anybody but rather you have spoken exactly the opposite words to me. That because you have raised me from the dead, because you have healed me from my sin, because you have touched me with true life, I have the opportunity to tell everybody. Lord, for all those in this room who have been touched by your resurrection, 
who have been raised from the dead, death of our sins, into new life in Jesus Christ. I pray that you would grant to us the ability again and the opportunities over and over again to tell somebody, to tell somebody what Jesus has done for me.